take first watch. to an all-new episode of the First Watch Podcast. I'm Zach, and I'm here with Cole. How are you? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. It is summertime. Our nation's favorite holiday, Tom Cruise's birthday, has just passed. And so we are over the halfway point of the year. We're in the triple shadow of Mission Impossible, Barbie, and Oppenheimer, which are all going to release a little bit later in the month. But we haven't quite gotten there yet. Instead, we are taking stock of the things that we've seen so far this year, our favorite movies of 2023 so far, before those big summer releases come and blow us all away. Yeah, although it certainly feels like they've already happened here. I literally cannot (laughs) escape an ad from any of them. Twitter is going absolutely feral for the Barbenheimer thing. (laughs) Like, it was a funny joke, and now you can't escape the t-shirt bots every six steps. Oh my god. I thought about buying one of those damn t-shirts, but then I was like, <laughs> Some of them are like, if you go on Letterboxd and look at the custom posters or some of the t-shirts, have this quite unintentional yassification of the atomic bomb, <laughs> where it's like a big pink mushroom cloud, and it's like, ah! Mm, I wonder how I much know. of this is just driven by pettiness on Warner Brothers' part, mm. since Nolan is no longer with them. But what's interesting is I think it's probably helped Oppenheimer, if anything, oh, yeah. being attached to this kind of viral, you know, McDonald's bubblegum toy. <laughs> <laughs> it's the picture of her in the pink cowboy suit next to him in his gray 1940s, <laughs> both tilting their hats. <laughs> Meanwhile, Oppenheimer is the movie with the gender discourse, and Barbie is the one with the geopolitical discourse. I can accept atomic bombs, but I draw the line at age gaps. <laughs> And that maps of the South China Seas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have a lot to say about that movie. I've been doing quite a lot of watches that are sort of related to the topic of Oppenheimer. So I'll hold off on talking about them since we have such a big episode. But before we hop into the main discussion, well, actually, I think we should talk a little bit about this list episode. For anybody that may not be aware, Cole and I like to get together, recollect, talk about things that we've seen, because we watch a lot of stuff. We don't always get to talk about everything. I think we've talked about most of the movies on today's list, but it's helpful to just combine it all together, maybe do it in a little bit of a tighter package for people that haven't seen every Mm -hmm. single one of these movies. So we will keep our discussions as spoiler-free as we can. And if you're interested, please do check out our most recent episodes. We just did a discussion on the films of Bellatar, as we each got to see some of his in theaters. We will try and call out any time that we've got episodes where we've discussed the movies that are on our list today. And then upcoming in the future, we'll obviously, as we've foreshadowed, talk about some of these upcoming releases that we're going to have in the summer. So before we get into today's discussion, anything that you've been catching up with recently? Yeah, absolutely. Let's start off with the most depressing one on the list, just to get it out of the way. (laughs) I want to talk for a moment about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Mm, That's a hard skip for me. (laughs) Before you've even said anything, I'm just like, nah, pass. I'm passing. Cease and desist. Can't do it. Sorry, guys. I mean, if you know me, you know that I will go and watch literally anything and everything made under the sun. (laughs) And I will sit for the whole damn thing from beginning to end. There was a moment, it's about maybe 15 minutes left of the movie, and I had to go use the restroom. And I was thinking to myself, why am I watching this shit? 
like I could just grab my bag and leave. And I never feel that way about anything. So it's really damning to think about it that way. But this film takes place in 1969, right around the time of the moon landing. Indiana Jones is old and sad. And let's just say that things have gone wrong in his life, which apparently all Lucasfilm loves to do nowadays is just mess up their legacy characters' lives <laughs> later on. It's apparently the only idea that they've got. So. Well, and it's like Logan, right? It's just, we're doing yeah. Logan again, but for a different Logan, character. But even more pointlessly depressing, in a sense. Mm. You know, with Logan, it's the weight of that violence over the course of years and years and years. Like, there's a mm -hmm. reason why it's like that. I think it yeah. makes sense for that violent and kind of feral of a character as he is. It's thematically for key. Indy? And this and this Harrison Ford is just 80 years old, and you worry every single time he has to do a stunt. I just think that when it comes to legacy, certain things make sense and other things don't when you watch uh, first of all indiana jones already had a legacy movie 2008 it was called indiana jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull and i know that you watched that too right yeah i gave it a rewatch and honestly nowhere near as bad as people make it out to be i will take this over dial of destiny any day of the week even spielberg's like weakest blockbuster stuff still tends to have some acumen yeah it's like one of the most lucas of the Indiana Jones movies, like they all are, all four of those ones yeah. are, but that one's like, you know, you got like all the people fighting in this diner and it's just like pure 50s Lucas stuff yeah. and kind of like pulp. But even in something like Ready Player One, which is not a good movie at all, in my opinion, but it still Terrible. has these set pieces that are directed with panache mm -hmm. where you're like, yeah, you know, this is a very skilled filmmaker. And I think that Kingdom of the Crystal Skull has that as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the scene with the fire ants is pretty fun. Mangold's not a bad action director, but one of the reasons why Logan's tone works as well as it does is because it means that that's not very much of an action movie at all, is it? No. It's more of like a road movie. Yeah, it's a journey mixed in with some bloody violence. But mm -hmm. the whole gist of this film is that it's 1969, Indiana Jones is old, and a Nazi officer played by Mads Mikkelsen is convinced that he can find the dial of Archimedes and turn back time to stop Hitler from losing World War II. So Indiana Jones goes on this quest, joined by Helena Shaw, his goddaughter, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. In my opinion, few things fucked up culture more than <laughs> The Last Crusade, being such a violent overcorrection to Temple of Doom. You got a Because that's where everything kind of is like, okay, it's the Nazis, and we have a MacGuffin, and it's going to be like this, and yep. he's going to say his catchphrase ten times more than he ever did before, and yep. here's how he got his hat, and here's how he got his whip, and here's how blah blah blah. Yep. And I, the point that I guess that I was making with Legacy is if you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, that movie is already about how much time has passed this guy by. How many things he's already done, how many adventures he's already been on. Karen Allen is like a figure from his past, all that stuff. And it's like about him aging, and it's about legacy already in 19-fucking-81. So, like, why are we still on this topic 40 years later? That doesn't make sense to me. We've given him a send-off three separate times now. I mean, the first time he literally rode off into the sunset. Into the sunset. You can't get better than that. <laughs> That's so dorky. Yeah. I don't know. A horribly boring film, completely depressing, really, really ugly. Like, yeah, this might be the ugliest movie I've seen with a budget this big. Yeah, this and Quantumania have some questions to be answered. Yeah, this one especially with that big old $295 million price tag. I don't know how many more times I can say that, but... <laughs>
I actually said this about Extraction. There's a behind-the-scenes video that's more compelling than the film itself mm-hmm. because you're watching everything from a crane shot and it doesn't have this like jittery, nasty camera movement. It doesn't have these edits stitching together a one-take and it doesn't have the bad color grading. Yeah. It's just like a generic, flat, undoctored camera crane shot and it looks nice. It looks pretty cool because the stunt is cool. And I saw some behind-the-scenes filming of the parade scene that's in Dial of Destiny, where Harrison's riding on the horse and everything. Mm -hmm. And just the undoctored, it doesn't look like it's in the correct period without all the CG, but it looks much better because it's a naturally daylit shot where a guy's on a horse in the middle of a street with a parade. And it's like, that looks cool. And then in the movie, it's got all this like bullshit fucking detail and confetti, and it looks wrong. Like It doesn't look like it's lit properly. The New York scenes are the most aesthetically unpleasing in the movie. It looks a little better when it gets to the Mediterranean. Mm. And then it swerves right back into ugliness with a very loopy twist in the finale, which I admired the audacity of. And I kind of wish that the movie had spent more time there instead of just 10 minutes. But The only other thing that jumps out to me at this movie is I read an article where Mm. they seem to be almost bragging that they spent three years de-aging, putting all the CG de-aging effects on that actor playing young Harrison Ford, where like, yeah, it looks like an accomplished effect for a PlayStation 5 video game. And I mean that with utter praise to the artist that did it, but what in the fuck is that for, man? It's not convincing. It looks like an animated character. It's a long-ass intro, too. It's like at least a solid 25 minutes. Because, again, just copying Last Crusade and, you know, Venice, they have to have an adventure in the opening here. And the thing is, sure, it looks like him, but then it moves, and the syncing of the audio is just a little bit off. And it's also Harrison Ford speaking, so you got this 80-year-old voice coming out of a 45-year-old body, and the body's moving like an 80-year-old, and I just felt like I needed to call a priest to get some holy water or something. So there's a similar thing in Logan, kind of, because there's a like younger clone of Wolverine that's like attacking them. There's a mix of things going on there where the older Logan that is the main character is Hugh Jackman in old-person makeup. He's Mm -hmm. being made to look more old and run down. So then the younger version of him is like his more normal looking self with some effects applied. And then additionally, just like it is in Blade Runner 2049, that character is like an abomination. Mm -hmm. He's like a Terminator monster character who is very violent and evil. And so like any level of, oh, that's weird and wrong and uncanny works in favor of the intended effect. It's not like, oh, here's my hero, but he's younger again. Hooray. I blame everyone who watched The Mandalorian. You're all going to hell. (laughs) Rogue One, I think, is the most pronounced original sin of this, particularly with Peter Cushing. Yeah, that's true. At least with Cushing, it's like the villain, so you're supposed to be a little put off. Yeah, yeah, I just, I can't. It's, it really, I can't, I hate looking at it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's weird no matter what you do. And actually, the the Carrie Fisher at the end is even worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't even like the Darth Vader, but yeah, that's off topic. Just more (laughs) Lucas, more post-Lucas, Lucasfilm. This is probably the last film Lucasfilm will ever put out at this rate, so. Sad. It's really sad (laughs) to me. It didn't have to be like this, but here we are, I guess. Yeah. A much more entertaining time at the movies was Insidious the Red Door, although this is probably Mm. an equally as bad movie. (laughs) (laughs) This is a sequel to Insidious 2, and it's set over a decade after the Lambert family have had their struggles with all these demons, you know, first possessing the kid and then possessing the husband. 
this entry is directed by Patrick Wilson, actually. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. He even performs on the original song at the end credits, which I had no idea <laughs> until looking it up. And I was like, what the hell? But it's America's greatest star, I guess. <laughs> yeah, everyone loves him. Wilson's stocks are way, way up. But set over, <laughs> but this is set a decade after Insidious Chapter 2. Patrick Wilson's mother has passed away. And as it turns out, he and his son were both hypnotized and forgetting like all of the events of those two Insidious movies. Like Everything's been gone, banished from their minds because they've been hypnotized. But the death of the mom makes things start to crack. And when the son, Dalton, goes away for college, he starts painting this door, a red door. And all of the ghouls and goblins of the night start coming out again at them both. And they have to figure out what's going on and unlock their past to steal that door away once and for all. It's a bizarre, bizarre experience. Because <laughs> you could tell they're going for horror and like a couple of moments got me for sure. But it's got like this weird structural issue where like nothing happens. But at the same time, it's just going along, kind of going through these motions of things happening. and. The son has a roommate who's written like a Rosalind Russell character, like straight out of His Girl Friday. And I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> what? What are we even doing here? The son is the fucking kid from Iron Man like, Three, the whale, and Iron Man Three. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ty terrible Spence. actor. Terrible. Actor. <laughs> and Patrick Wilson is playing all of this completely dead straight, like super sincere. It's supposed to be like a father and son generational trauma movie, and I'm like. Which is also weird because when you think about that first Insidious, which I, I don't like either. I think it's really, really boring. The heart of that movie is Rose Byrne. What sticks out to me is like, and maybe I'm misunderstanding the Insidious conjuring like all this stuff, but there's like a cottage industry of movies that cannot stop over-enunciating the generational trauma metaphor of their horror movies. A bunch of movies trying mm-hmm. to live in the shadow of the Babadook, basically. Yeah. And I feel like the you know Blumhouse and all these kind of other movies, sort of the appeal of them is that they're not like that. They don't have that specific pretension. So I, yeah, I mean, all the insidious and conjuring stuff to me is like math. I mean, conjuring kind of like bounces around that and gets to avoid it, but like insidious just completely disappears up its own asshole in terms of like yeah. trauma right. and mental no, health and all that shit and like. Uh, it's exhausting. <laughs> I mean, I laughed a lot. There's one particular moment where he's talking about his dead father, where the mental illness stuff comes in. And it's a moment that's meant to be completely sincere. And the whole audience was quiet. And then he says something completely ridiculous. And I let out <laughs> a full-blown cackle in that auditorium. <laughs> the only real new release that's been on my radar, I kind of already mentioned that I've been watching stuff that's more geared for a later episode. But I did watch Nimona, the latest animated feature that dropped mm. on Netflix. Really troubled production schedule. It's an adaptation of a source that I have not read. But I know that you also caught up with that. Yeah. And we were both a little more mixed on it than I think some of my friends were. Kind of almost wish there was somebody here to be like, all right, here's what I'm so passionate about. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I thought that it was a really, you know, it's a unique look it's very expressive i think it almost would have looked better as like a video game where you get to like kind of control these characters around as if you could like do things with them yeah i did not gel with the animation style in this at all it's just not my personal taste i mean on the whole i thought it was fine the production history this was a blue sky production that was about 80 percent completed and then 
when Fox got bought out by Disney, Disney looked at it and was like, eh, we're not going to do this. Shut it down. And then it ended up over at Netflix. It's fine. It's fine. This is like calling McDonald's the best restaurant in the world. It's fine. Andy Stevenson is one of the voices behind that who also did the, I think it's the She-Ra remake and a couple other animated things. So it's got a little bit of a pedigree in terms of kind of modern animation fans. And I think one Mm -hmm. of the things that's probably the most compelling about it is that it's got like an LGBT identity basically running all the way throughout it in a way that isn't like half-assed or shoved into the corner. It's kind of more of a main focus. Mm -hmm. And so from that angle you know it's much more refreshing than like pixar's attempt at doing the same things in movies like onward and lightyear yeah it's thoughtfully done which i do appreciate wasn't really in the target audience for it i think is part of it but it is charming i mean this is for kids you know so there's a limit here i think if you get a little bit more mileage out of that sort of thing Mm -hmm. i would definitely recommend checking it out and supporting it so I think that's pretty much everything I had, unless you've got anything else. No, that's pretty we'll much it. We'll be lighting the fuse at a later time, I think. Oh, dun, yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I just want to say, for the record, the person who did that theme song best is Fred Durst of Limp Bizkit. The end. That's all. <laughs> just throwing it out there. MI2 is a good movie. We'll talk about that at a later time. <laughs> um, <laughs> so with that, we will pivot into our list and talk about a couple of honorable mentions do you want to go ahead and start off yeah absolutely first honorable mention i'm gonna bring up is return to soul Mm, yes which i know we talked about on an episode earlier in the year but i still really enjoy that film directed by david chu about a south korean woman who was born and raised in france and goes back to find her birth family but finds herself caught in between you know not being french enough and not being south korean enough and it's this really thorny aggressive, angry little movie about carving out your own identity in the world. And I found it to be really compelling with a fantastic central performance. And I'll also give a quick shout out to a movie that I know that you hate, hate, <laughs> hate. <laughs> really do admire the tenacity of Skinnamarink. Mm, for sure. A couple movies that I saw in theaters with my friend Adam here in the great city of Dallas. I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to see if I can figure out where... Uh, I think we talked about... Um, Return to Soul on our Godland episode, actually. Oh, yeah. It was around that time. It was in March. One of the things that's really great about Return to Soul is just the cross-cultural rifts that are not American immigrant stories, which I think one of the movies that is on my list is an American story. It's kind of North American, Canadian American. Hint, hint, if you listened to our last episode, you already know what I'm talking about. But (laughs) I like that it's a Korean-French, so it's like Asia and Europe and not just the Americas, I think it adds a fresh dynamic and more interesting, not even more interesting, just different, just new, you know, less familiar. And I think that lack of familiarity really helps the concept because everything is about that feeling of alienation and directionlessness. Yeah. It's one of those finding your way in the world movies, like a lot of movies about young women are, but I think it's less easily resolved than most of them are. I think it has a a little bit more of like that edge to it. It's more reflective of real life. Mm. And then, yeah, Skinamarink, just like a later, we'll maybe talk a little bit more about that. But yeah, yeah, an interesting movie, kind of part of a wave of movies. And later on, I kind of want to talk and see if you agree that they all fit together or what the similarities and differences are, but I'll save that for the time being. And uh, let's go ahead and kick into the list proper. All right. So we're going to kick things off with my number five, which as of July, 2023, my number five for the year is RMN, 
This is a Romanian drama film directed by Christian Mungu, directed the Pondor winner four months, three weeks, two days, Beyond the Hills, Graduation. And this is set during the 2019 Christmas season in this small village in Romania. And it's about Matthias, played by Marin Grigore, and his ex-lover Celia, played by Judith State, as the town reacted extremely negatively to these free Sri Lankan immigrants. Celia is brought in to work at the local bread factory that she runs because she can't find anyone in the village who wants to work for her, even though she's offering double overtime pay. So she brings in all these immigrants, and the town does not take that well. Turns out uh, xenophobia travels across the globe. In particular, there's one like almost 20-minute scene of a town hall meeting about what to do with the immigrants and the bread factory and all that. And a lot of what's being said by the residents of the village, you know, translating into English, it's the same stuff that you hear out here in Florida or mm. Tennessee or Montana or North Dakota. It's actually based on a real-life incident I was mm-hmm. reading today that happened in a Romanian village that is a multi-ethnic village where there's a very concentrated population of Hungarian individuals, people who are of that nationality. And so it's a look at a kind of layered xenophobia that exists among minorities within a country who are not part of you know the broad cultural majority of Romanians in this case, and then their xenophobic attitudes, because it's like their disenfranchisement has sort of pushed them toward the right wing and being more intolerant and being more like, we have to have solidarity among us Hungarians because we are the minority here. We have to take care of ourselves. We have to look out for each other and maintain the integrity of our communities against these Romanians. But then that ends up being expressed through quite hateful xenophobia towards these Sri Lankan migrants yeah. who are, <laughs> I mean, the most American sounding thing about them is doing work that literally no one else wants to do. The main character, Matthias, is returning to town, has no job, but he's like coming back to take care of his son and yeah. like be part of his family again or whatever. Mm-hmm. He has no job, yeah. but he outright refuses this bakery job. He's like, mm-hmm. I would literally rather not work. Right. As a matter of fact, he fled his last job in Germany because he was called a slur and attacked the co-worker who said yeah. that towards him. Yeah, that was interesting. And yet, even then, this guy just refuses to take the job. Yeah, that was an interesting note, the way that it begins with the xenophobia that he experiences in another country, and then he goes home, and then it's experiencing it there, too. Yeah, it's this never-ending cycle that just drags everyone involved down. For me, this was a little... (laughs) I don't want to be basic. All of the Mung Yu films I've seen are distant and cold and kind of... When you watch Beyond the Hills, that's like a classic European trope of lesbian nunsploitation, and there's an exorcism, but it is just like one of the most bracing and harrowing movies. Mm-hmm. And there's just kind of a beguiling, like he doesn't always give you all the information at once. For instance, there's a central mystery in this movie where the young son, Rudy, of the main character, saw something in the woods that scared him. But he won't talk about what it is that he saw out there. And so there's like always these kind of beguiling mystery elements. And I just found this one yeah. to be a little bit too austere, a little bit too, you know, you, at some point you got to mm-hmm. put the pot on the fucking stove. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a foreboding tension to it all. And I enjoy how cold it looks, particularly mm-hmm. those scenes that are set out in the woods. It's clearly winter. All the dead leaves are on the ground. You can see them like blowing. Sometimes there's snow. Yeah. And it's just very inhospitable looking Transylvanian environment. Yeah, it's damp, it's chilly, you can feel it in your bones just by watching the movie. Yeah, 
for sure. Yeah, no, this is my particular strain of European art house cinema that I enjoy quite a bit. Absolutely. I have a lot of movies that are, you know, like The Return or the other Mung Yu films, Four Months, Three Weeks, Two Days, is really lovely. And Burning, obviously, that's Korean, not European at all. But I think that Lee Chang Dong's films have a lot of these characteristics too, and they extend mm-hmm. beyond just Europe. And I don't know, sometimes they can just feel a little bit like. We have Mikhail Hanukkah at home, and he's not <laughs> hes not getting into gear. He's not doing the stuff. <laughs> I really did like that town hall sequence, and I'm glad that you mentioned that, because that's like really extremely well executed. Yeah. And it's like when you watch Four Months, Three Weeks, Two Days, one of the best scenes of it is this dinner scene where the main character is like sitting at a table, and it's just this long take of mm. watching all the actors go, and you kind of see that she's wanting to get back to the thing that she's supposed to be doing. And Mungi's really, really skillful at directing those long shots like that. Yeah, he really makes you feel the emotions of every single character just by mm. basically stewing in the same room as they are. I think somewhat the ambition to try to capture the community as a character is a little bit less effective for me than some of his earlier films, which are more about their individual respective characters. Mm -hmm. And maybe their conflict with the culture and the rules and things like that. Yeah, This one, I think, kind of tried to zoom it out. It's very ambitious. I didn't feel the impact of it quite as much as I was hoping to. I mean, I would call it a step down from his best works, but for me, even then, like, I mean, second rate Monkey are... is still, like, top tier. Yeah, watch Graduation. That's... <laughs> what a picture. So from there, we'll go ahead and pivot to my number five film on my list, a movie that played for exactly one night here in the United States. Uh, courtesy of was that a was that fathom events unfortunately yeah that's right yeah we talked about this during our across the spider-verse episode we had a nice bug and spider arachnid <laughs> themed episode and that's the latest from anime and live action savant hideaki ano the creator of neon genesis evangelion is the latest entry in the shin series which began with shin godzilla continued with shin ultraman Uh, There's an Evangelion film that's in there somewhere, and this is Shin Kamen Rider. Shin Kamen Rider is a live-action, modern film adaptation that combines narrative and character from both the original manga and the television series from the 1970s. Hmm. As such, it keeps a lot of characteristics of those earlier things. It's a little episodic, kind of of monster-of-the-week type of plotting. And a lot of the effects and stylization will remind you of television shows of that era where the special effects are based on camera tricks and, you know, different things that were limiting for those types of productions. And here, we're retaining that style while adding in the flourishes and production that a modern film can allow you to do. And so it's a brilliant little fusion of the modern superhero film, except much, much, much better than most of them. And those like retro stylizations so that it feels really fresh and really nostalgic at the same time. And for fans of those properties, it's also just really loaded up with, you know, sometimes things can be cumbersome and loaded up with references. But this, I think, to give an example, when the two common writers meet in the TV series, the original one has a broken ankle. 
And in this movie, they write in a plot line about him getting his leg broken so that it kind of homages that. But it's not done in a cumbersome way that would alienate anybody that doesn't get that that's a reference. It just feels like part of the movie. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really elegant balance that this movie strikes. Yeah, everything's worked in very naturally in this movie. It reminds you of watching a Saturday morning cartoon that aired in the 70s. There's a lot more blood now. Yeah, <laughs> like a lot more. <laughs> a lot of blood. I mean, heads just <laughs> popping like balloons. Jesus. <laughs> What's cool, I think, about that, because at first it's just sort of like extreme, whoa, blood, yeah. blah, But I think it actually has a pretty mature relationship with those acts of violence and what it oh, means yeah. to try to be a hero who overcomes like petty vengeance. Because the whole plot revolves around these basically superhero animal slash bug slash human hybrids and all of them are kind of using their powers for their own selfishness whereas we're kind of seeing the character who's trying to find the virtue in it and it's you know we've seen a million superhero movies this year alone and in this decade alone and in the last two to three decades but this just i think has a smarter head on its shoulders in the most basic way. Yeah, I mean, they're not making anything this thematically complicated stateside, so... Mm -hmm. And I think the emotions are just like everything that you and I have been talking about in the wake of James Cameron, Avatar, like, sincerity is back, irony is out, no more Deadpool, yes, more Kamen Rider. (laughs) Yes, it's a very, very sincere movie, and God help us all when Deadpool 3 comes out starring (laughs) Elektra. Starring Jennifer Garner. And Ben Affleck. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I saw some picture of their kid, and it was that had a comment. It was oh. like, his genes had no effect here. Zero. Like, she looks exactly like her mother. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this uh, Shin Kamen Rider is actually, you know, when one of the reasons I kind of like to do these midterm episodes is because I think that you and I have an appreciation for the action blockbuster and, you know, set pieces when they're done really well. But it's not always common that an Avatar The Way of Water makes our top five, respectively, for the end of the year. And so these midterms are kind of nice because we can highlight these early year summer movies that are like big and exciting like Shin Kamen Rider is Mm -hmm. that maybe we don't always get to in the wake of our Bellatar, Albert Serra type of appreciation. Yeah, I mean, I am an art house ho through and through, but I have some love for the popcorn movies too. Especially when they do cool slow motion katana fights with like superpowered wasps Mm -hmm. so creative so fun i really cannot wait to own both this and shin ultraman i would like to like get them and rewatch them since they were only like around for the one day it kind of feels like it was exciting it came and it went why just can we get a theatrical release for these in the future i hope enough people saw these that we maybe get those but we'll see i mean even if well go usa maybe could put up something for these that would be awesome yeah, I feel very fortunate to have seen all three Godzilla, Ultraman, and Kamen Rider in theaters, but mm. I don't think that's very common. Definitely not. Definitely not. So, with that, go ahead and start the pivot. I got a question for you, though. Mm-hmm. Halfway through the year here, I'm curious about your surprises and your disappointments. Movies that you went into with a certain kind of expectation and they hit you the other way. They were a little bit less than what you expected or a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. One of which we'll talk about towards the end of the episode, but one I want to bring up really quick is Asteroid City. Oh, yeah. I saw that you raised your score on that. I did, I did. The more I thought about it, the more I was like, this is actually really, really good. I mean, I liked it upon first watch, Mm -hmm. but, you know, there's kind of a limit 
to me with Wes Anderson, but totally just because of you know his particular style and you know the themes that he explores. Because he has free range to do whatever he wants, sometimes you just kind of get an expectation set in. But yeah, Asteroid sure. City felt like a genuine curveball in a way that I really appreciate. You know, it's kind of like because they have such similar themes at times, because the style is consistent, it's cool in a way that allows everybody to have their own favorites, but it can kind of start to be like, well, why aren't they all like this? Or not not that, you know, I don't think we all want no variety, but you just kind of start to think of them on that level. Moonrise Kingdom, that's a good movie, but I don't love it. It's not one Mm -hmm. of my preferred Wes Anderson, so when I reach for one of his movies, it's not the one that I grab. And it's not an admonishment, it's just not the one that I dig Mm -hmm. as much. And I like that this movie was one that was basically him stopping to think about why do I make all my movies like this? Like, yeah. What's the reason for that? I heard a pretty good analysis of this that it was like, it's a movie about making a Wes Anderson movie, reflecting on what that means and what the ideas are. And, mm-hmm. you know, even just the big cast and having like the layer of it be about the cast of the stage play so that within the concept of the narrative, there is a cast within the cast. He's got mm-hmm. his loaded cast playing actors. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> So on the disappointment front? Uh, let's see. On the disappointment front, I mean, taking a look at the bottom of my list over here. Yeah, this is kind of a weird prompt for me because I, I actually am pretty good at predicting. I yeah, kind of same. have a good idea of what I'm going to like versus what I'm going to not like. Yeah, I've got a pretty good barometer of my own taste. But I mean, I guess a disappointment would be... Uh, well, that one was a very good thing. I don't think that's going to be bad, but... While you're looking, I'll shout my couple of surprises positive. Both of these are mild, because these are, like I was just saying, I expected that I would probably enjoy both of these, but I ended up enjoying them both more than I expected. One of them is Evil Dead Rise Mm. by Lee Cronin. I didn't really love Ash vs. Evil Dead TV series. I don't really love the Fede Alvarez 2013, like, super fucking grisly, gory reboot. The trailers made this look fun, but I also saw the trailer for it, like, 30 times, cracking the eggs in that fucking frying pan. But when I saw it, I just, you know, nice, tight movie, lots of creativity. Mm -hmm. I think some people were disappointed with this because they have, like, I don't know, Evil Dead protectiveness like investment in the franchise yeah i have none of that so for me it was just a lovely little early year horror movie it's probably my favorite horror movie of the year so far actually it is my second favorite horror film of the year after skinamarink mm-hmm. absolutely yeah i guess in terms of disappointments scream six was a little bit of a letdown mm, i mean sure. not bad by any did means did you like five but- I did. I did like five. Okay. Five was good, but I kind of like six a little more than five. Just literally on the strength of that one ladder kill. Oof, that's a good kill. That's like gruesome shit. <laughs> but I think in hindsight, I do kind of prefer five a little bit. Mm. I think five just has a brutality to it that six kind of shies away from. I'm not really. I guess my hottest take scream wise is that i don't really like the west craven sequels that much either i like four probably the best just because mm-hmm. there seems to be some venom coming from the old master talking about the state of horror and horror remakes and i think it was a little ahead of its time to be talking about remake culture which yeah. is probably even worse now over 10 years later i wonder how much of that came out from that nightmare on elm street remake oh god uh, the worst <laughs> of them all maybe 
what a terrible movie. For me, <laughs> disappointments, there's really two that come to mind. One of them is a movie that I liked, so don't take my disappointment to be like, I'm banishing it to hell. But that's Paul Schrader's Master Gardener, mm. which is his third movie in uh, what I will consider an informal trilogy, which includes First Reformed, which I think is maybe the best movie he's ever directed, and mm. The Card Counter, which is not that exceptional, but at a very minimum, has one of the great Oscar Isaac performances, is really intelligent, was very surprising. Master Gardner was surprising too, but <laughs> it was just... Uh, not in the way we expected. It was a like, not a love. I mean, it's definitely the weakest of that trilogy, but even then, good movie. The other one for me might seem a little weird. I don't know that I necessarily advertised that I was looking forward to it this much, but it was Ennis Men. Mm. This is where I was going to talk a little bit about Skinnamarink. I wasn't really disappointed by Skinnamarink because I had no expectations for it. I just yeah. went to see it as the third part of a triple feature uh-huh. in theaters. I went to see that one in theaters because I skipped. We're all going to the World's Fair in theaters. And I just was bored out of my mind watching that on my TV. So I thought, you know, big crowd experience. That'll be fun. Didn't really take. Saw Ennis Men the same way as a double feature with Godland. And it was just like fucking boring. My disappointment is almost that none of those three movies work for me, in spite of the fact that I think that they're all trying something much more creative than here comes Insidious 5 to talk about generational (laughs) fucking trauma. Like, certainly, I think all three of them are reaching higher, aspiring bigger, but I I can't really put my fingers on why they don't work, except that I think Ennis and Skinnamarink might have worked better for me as short films as opposed to features. You think there's just not enough material in there for you? I think Skinnamarink has like six-ish moments in it. Like I can think of the moment where the mother is by the bed in the bedroom where you kind of like see her appear through the fog. Oh, God. But it is so much fucking like waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And that's not putting me, it, it didn't put me in the perspective of those children enough for me to be like freaked out by all that waiting or like building up the tension. So I think like, 20, 30 minutes might have solved that. Like, you still want the duration. And his men should have been like three to five minutes long straight up. There's no reason for that to be longer than 10 minutes at all. I mean, it shouldn't all. have existed, but you know, here we it's, are. I think it's cool. I think it's a cool little experiment, <laughs> but like, why is that getting a theatrical release properly? And, you know, we're just talking about Shin Kamen Rider that isn't. Like, I, I don't know. Horror is cool the way that people support it and the way that you can have a terrifier to have a theatrical run but i also like is it that good (laughs) don't even get me started on that movie my god (laughs) i mean sure getting someone and then bleaching and salting their backside i i guess if that's your kicks uh (laughs) go get your kicks and you know don't mind me i'm just gonna be calling the psych ward (laughs) (laughs) i kind of heard you say it but i'll mention that Bo is afraid again I expected three stars. I got what, for me, I put two and a half. So it was like, Mm -hmm. not that bad. It was like, fine, you know? But I do think that that was like an admirable swing for something big and bold and weird. Mm -hmm. Anytime that I don't like an admirable swing for something big and bold and weird, that's a little disappointing to me. Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time wondering why it didn't work. Yeah, he took a big old swing at the baseball bat and I got a black eye when the ball (laughs) hit me in the face. But, you know, we live. Another movie that maybe should have stayed a short film. I don't know. Probably I mean, three hours. Fuck you, but <laughs> <laughs> watch Problemista. I can't wait. Does that still have like an official release date or something? Because I haven't seen anything. 
I saw posters for it at AMC, uh, but I don't know. This is crazy. This is crazy. This is August 4th. August 4th. All right. <laughs> Double feature with strays, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but the number four on my list is Showing Up, the latest uh, yes. film by Kelly Reichardt. First count, Meek's cut off. Problemista, Rizza. Showing Up, Andre 3000. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> This is a drama comedy about Lizzie, played by Michelle Williams, her fourth time collaborating with Reichardt. She's a sculptor who just has to deal with all these various stresses in her life, including her family, her job at a liberal arts college, her landlord slash rival slash neighbor slash friend, <laughs> Joe, played by Hung Chow in an illuminating performance. She's really great. Yeah. She might give my favorite performance in Asteroid City, too. She's so good in Asteroid City. She's doing so much to make up for the whale right now. Yeah, I mean, she's just on a hot streak right now. Love her. But this is a film just about what it's like to be an artist and make art and all of the struggles that come with that. Yet you normally don't see in a movie, you know, you don't see like the stress about bills and paying your rent and getting a new water heater in or taking care of this bird that just flew in and got attacked by a cat. It's a movie about all the little things in life. The one that got me is that she has to request time off of her hourly job in order to finish her work sculpting for a show that is being held at her job. Mm -hmm. So she's having to request off of work to get work done. And I think what sticks is that it's kind of a hassle. Yeah. She just had to ask off time from her mother, who is her boss. Her mom's her boss. Like, how ridiculous is it when she's you think like, about it? Well, if you it. want time off, why don't you just take the time off? Like, she's really rude about it. She's very, like, off-putting. And it's like, God, literally, I'm having to... That, to me, is the most real and felt thing. Is like, when I take vacation from work, I got to go get my car worked on. I got to go do my shopping. I got to do this. I got to do this. Time off is never really time off when you're no, an adult. There's always... Not something to do there's always something that you're responsible for mm -hmm, absolutely and sometimes people are throwing new responsibilities at you all the time they're like hey can you watch your brother hey can you watch this pigeon <laughs> i know you got a cat but can you look after this bird that your cat is totally going to view as food i know you haven't had a hot shower in your own house in over a month but you can use mine if you want <laughs> way too real uh -huh. One of the things that I think is really cool about Kelly's films that are particularly set in this same location, which is in the Pacific Northwest, is how well they capture that culture, like the buildings mm -hmm. and the way that people dress and the way that people act. Like, only in Oregon are you going to end up with a fucking denim overall landlord <laughs> who's holding a pigeon in a bucket hat, like, hey, can you watch this bird? <laughs> That's just so Pacific Northwest to uh, me. That would not happen in Texas. No, 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 no. They would <laughs> shoot the pigeon and fry it. <laughs> There's literally, is it Magaro that makes the joke? There's somebody, no, it's um, it's one of the guys that keeps coming into the office where Michelle Williams works. He's like, you know, we shoot pigeons. <laughs> we don't save pigeons. <laughs> like, he literally says that. The movie's a very realistic and true-to-life depiction of the unique hellscape that is a arts college. For me, so I love Kelly Record. She's one of my favorite working directors. This is near the lower end for me. Mm -hmm. I think it reminds me the most of certain women, the way that it's like quite low key. And, you know, there's not these, uh, it's kind of wrong to say about one of the plots of certain women is that it doesn't have big stakes. But 
almost like Wes Anderson a little with the French Dispatch versus Asteroid City. In that anthological format that Certain Women has, it allows those stories to just kind of exist within tighter boundaries. Whereas this felt a little bit like, because it is so realistic, it doesn't really have a point A to point B plot. It's mostly about her getting ready for this show, Mm -hmm. and then her family comes to the show, and it's just that. Like, very little of it is ever resolved or dealt with, because it's like, what you see is Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday in her life, those four days. Yep. And how much gets resolved in your life in four days versus how many new things come up? Does her shower even get fixed? I don't think it does. <laughs> Not from what I recall. <laughs> oh, that's right, because Hong Chao says she has to go drive all the way over like a hundred miles or something or not even a hundred miles but like just a long distance to go pick up a new water here you chose to be the landlord (laughs) (laughs) i don't want to fucking hear it the the water issue is not resolved the way that kelly treats it you understand that all of the problems that michelle williams character is facing hong chow's character is going to be facing too maybe they're different problems maybe they're easier problems but she's got two shows going on like just everybody's got so much shit to balance in their lives no matter who you are and i think that that's mature you know there's no villain in sight here yeah no everyone's got their own baggage to deal with here yeah although hong chow's a little bit of a villain in this movie in my opinion (laughs) a little bit tiny bit i mean i mean she is a landlord i would move out that's all i would move out i would not (laughs) be in that living arrangement. Uh, good luck finding affordable living in Portland. That's all I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so from a movie undeniably for adults and about adults, we move to perhaps the best movie of the year for children, young adults, teenagers, I would say. It's probably the blockbuster that's going to remain the highest on my list unless Tom Cruise has something to say Mm. about it. And that is the much-anticipated sequel to the Oscar-winning Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse Part 1 of 2. Sounds like the third installment of this trilogy is probably getting delayed, and that's probably a good thing. Yeah, especially when the two people on top apparently don't know how animation works. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this has been an interesting little lightning rod. This is kind of the film Twitter movie of the year, at least so far, Mm -hmm. in terms of popularity, discussion, maybe a little bit of blowback, maybe a little bit of not lived up to expectations, things like that. I mean, it was so popular that Letterboxd had to basically adjust their ranking system because they were like, all right. I made enough a joke about that, and people were like, that algorithm had nothing to do with Spider-Verse. I'm like, it had nothing to do with Spider-Verse? It had nothing to do with the fact that the number one film on that list changed five times in under a year? I'm thinking that's the reason. It was the talking it's bugs. It's the anti-puss and boots algorithm. And the panic attack cats, and oh god, help us all. There's literally a short film where Miles Morales deals with having a panic attack. Did you know that? I hate this. <laughs> I hate this so much. I realize this makes me sound like an asshole, but I don't care. Thankfully, as exhausting as the community can be, this movie is a bright, shining, fizzling, exciting breath of fresh air, Mm -hmm. I think. Absolutely. Because as much as we might admonish Lord and Miller's techniques, what ends up on this screen is marvelous in terms of its animated technique. It is marvelous in terms of its screenplay structure, which is much more ambitious than the first movie, Mm -hmm. which focuses very tightly on Miles's arc, while all these other characters are kind of inhabiting the world and keeping the action moving. This movie splits its focus. Miles and Gwen get very similar levels of emotional focus, Mm -hmm. 
And I think like all great sequels in the blockbuster realm, in the superhero realm, gets a little bit deeper and darker in dealing with the troubles that are associated with living two lives, Mm -hmm. being a young person growing up with your parents, trying to be something bigger than that, trying to figure out who you're going to be. And also, boy, howdy, just some fucking ripping action in this (laughs) one. The opening 30 minutes of this for me is where it peaks, where it's in Gwen's world Mm -hmm. and you get her cold open and she's fighting the vulture and everything. Ah, that's great. I saw it a second time in IMAX with my friend and just had a ball, really smoothed over some of the things that I didn't love about it. And Mm -hmm. I just had a great, great time with it. And when Cole gives a superhero movie four stars, it's (laughs) fucking, it's a good movie. (laughs) That's my rule. Yeah. I mean, the fact that this movie works at all is nothing short of a miracle. Mm-hmm. To be it frank. truly is. I love the new characters. I think Hobie, played by Daniel Kaluuya. You've got Pavater, who's played by the dude who plays the cabbie in Deadpool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Spot, played by Jason Schwartzman, who's yeah. also in Asteroid City. There's mm-hmm. just a lot of fun new additions also, to this cast. Don't forget Miguel O'Hara, played by Oscar Isaac. Oh, yeah. That's true. He's technically in the first one, but only in the very, 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 very final stinger yeah. scene. No, he's great and i think when we had this discussion spider-man across the spider-verse is one of the episodes that we've done mm-hmm. did it with shin common writer shouts to my four and my five we talked a lot about where we expect the sequel to go from here mm-hmm. and this idea of canon and i think that when i rewatched it you see a lot more of how miguel represents the toxicity of these fans who are obsessed mm-hmm. with the canon you have to protect the canon which is something that we've heard a lot in the last couple of years, specifically since December 2017, but you know. Mm -hmm. I love the concept of Miles as the anomaly and the disruptor, Mm -hmm. and using this character to kind of represent throwing a wrench into how we think superhero movies are supposed to work, and then the result of that making probably the two best superhero movies the past 10-ish years into and across the Spider-Verse, in my opinion. Just about, just about. Both just like, fun as hell, move great colors yeah super entertaining really smartly made cannot wait to see where the next one goes yeah and please for the love of god hey your animators learn how animation works you know (laughs) but fingers crossed that the next one turns out to be just as good i've really enjoyed i will say how across the spider-verse has brought out the animators themselves who have their Twitter accounts where they'll talk about like, yeah, I animated this sequence and here's how I did it. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've actually learned a lot about the behind the scenes process on that movie because of what a big production it is personnel wise. Yeah. I love seeing everyone talk about their craft on Twitter Mm -hmm. for this movie in particular, like, you know, talking about how they animated Hobie on ones and twos and like all these different speeds and styles. And it's like, how do you pull that off? I love how, not enunciated it is it's not like okay we stopped everything so that you could watch how this was animated it just Mm -hmm. happens and it's there to accentuate character and moments and humor the movie for all of its referential humor never stops to make a joke it's like always happening in the corner in the background and the movement keeps you just going 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 through this huge runtime and it's a movie that never feels that long no hats off it literally just kind of ends and i'm like all right all right keep keep going. Where's the rest of it? Mm -hmm. That's my single biggest problem with it. I'm wondering how Dead Reckoning will be in this way as well. Yeah. For the part one, part two. Honestly, I kind of wonder how Dune 2 is going to handle that since we got that second half coming to a close this year for that one as well. Mm -hmm. And a part three may be on the way, it was rumored. Maybe. 
I mean, I'm not sure if Deadline would put that in there without some sort of insider confirmation. So yeah, I think it's pretty clear that he wants to. Is the main thing. Yeah, hopefully they fund that. Mm. So I'm gonna pivot to a question for yes. us. So we've talked a lot about movies so far, but let's talk about individual performances for a moment. You mm. got any favorites? Um. Well, yeah, for sure. There's a few that are gonna come up that are in our top threes here. But let me just take a look and see. One of them, <laughs> I don't even know that I want this on my list, but one of them oh. is Majors in Creed 3, which is obviously intensely complicated by his behind-the-scenes issues. I'm just literally <laughs> looking at the list, and he was the first one that popped out where I was like, <laughs> he's fucking great in that movie, but <laughs> he might not oh. be in too many more movies after this. I don't know. I, I don't think so. Um Ooh. I think one of the ones that we've actually already talked about would be Park Ji-min in Return to Seoul, who plays mm. the main character, Freddy, and yeah. just getting to watch her navigate the complexities of what she's doing there is really interesting and intricate. Mm-hmm. I'll shout Alyssa Sutherland in Evil Dead Rise, another movie that I've already mentioned. She plays the mom hey. who becomes the main Deadite, really giving one of the great Deadite performances in the history of that franchise, I would say. Absolutely. She is having so much fun. And then I'll shout out my girl, Julia Louis-Dreyfus in You Hurt My Feelings by Nicole Holofcener, hey. because I think that's just a nice little movie that more people should see. Yeah, absolutely. See, for quick shout-outs, I'm going to give a couple of shout-outs. First up to Tiana Taylor in 1001. Mm. She gives a really just flat-out incredible performance as a single mother who goes from shelter to shelter and kidnaps her own son from foster care so that way they can build a life together. And she tells him nothing about this and just spends years and years living out this lie of you know having to kidnap her own son. And it's such an emotional, layered, heavy performance. And she's incredible in it. For screaming and Beatrix, I'm going to have to shout out Glenn Howerton and Blackberry. Oh, yeah. This is another one of those like product movies, but it's about a product that failed. Mm. It's a little more acidic, a little angrier, which I think puts it ahead of the rest, you know, especially over stuff like air. Yeah, we had a few of those this year. Yeah, and we got more on the way. But Glenn Howerton plays this cutthroat businessman, like Psycho Shark, who basically swoops in on these guys who had the idea for Blackberry and basically funds them and eventually just takes more and more control of the company. And it's such an intense, angry, just like vicious, nasty little performance that whenever he's on screen, you just can't take your eyes off of him. Mm. And then I'll circle back to Asteroid City for a moment. I want to shout out in particular Jeffrey Wright as that general just Perfect comedic delivery. Yeah. Chapter two. My father went off to fight in the war to end all wars. It didn't. And what was left of him came back in a pine box with a flag on top. End of chapter two. Back when we talked about that, which was on our... Was that our last episode? Yeah, that, that was, was on the Bellatar episode. When I saw that I got to see an advanced screening at Alamo Draft House, and he did an intro video where he's like, is said that I can say anything in my voice and it will sound epic. Snickerdoodle. And he's like, you know, just saying random <laughs> things. He's fantastic. Yeah, He's such a great match for Wes Anderson because of how verbose mm-hmm. those characters tend to be. And he can just like rattle things off yeah. and make it sound really smooth and everything. I mean, honestly, I could put the entire cast of that movie on my list if I wanted to. 
when I was listening back and you read off all the names mm-hmm. of that cast, it's like, holy fuck, when you're halfway through it and then there's like eight more to go. Right. And like every single one of those cast members is so memorable. Mm. Like, I mean, Margot Robbie's in it for one scene and she's fantastic. I shouted out Hong Chao, but I will also shout out Adrian Brody. Mm. They share their scenes together. Those characters yeah. are ex-husband and wife. Yep. He really made an impression on me in the French Dispatch, too, as the art dealer who's just getting like more and more and more frustrated. I love yeah. Adrian Brody. <laughs> i also give a shout out to Tom Hanks, who I think is the mm. perfect match for Anderson's sensibilities. I have really, I'm looking at my list. I see three in a name, and they're all in your top three movies. So I think we should continue with the list, and I'll tell you what they are as we go. One of them's in your very next one. Yeah, I've also got three more, but I see that's possibly in your next one as well. So so on to the top threes. All right, let's go. So my number three, again, switching from the kids stuff to the European art house again, going to talk a little bit about Godland. This is a Danish drama film directed by Hilna Palmason, set in the late 1800s. It's about a Lutheran priest played by Elia Krosethov, who's sent to Iceland to set up a new church for the Lutherans to continue to expand their parishes and, you know, convert more people. But there's a problem. Guy doesn't speak Icelandic. Guy doesn't want to learn how to speak Icelandic. Guy doesn't want to learn anything about Iceland. Guy doesn't care about Iceland. Guy doesn't care about the Icelandic people. So it's about this one idiot fucking off into the wilderness and learning very quickly that he is not suited for any of this shit. I watched, we talked about Aguirre, The Wrath of God, the Herzog film after this, and was like, oh, oh, same yep. thing. Mm-hmm. Got it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was a very fantastic theatrical experience. It's along with your number one, hint, hint, wink, wink, probably my favorite cinematography of the entire year so far. Mm. We actually, you and I talked about this because it's so grainy and like fuzzy and textured that I assumed it was 16 millimeter, but it is in fact 35 millimeter, mm-hmm. all on location out there in Iceland, shooting on these vast icy plains, the rivers looking so cold, the big yeah. waterfall. And then in the second half, we pivot from the doomed adventure narrative of this, you know, colonizer into the colony itself. And we see what it is actually like within the burgeoning civilization. To me, it's kind of like a Western in a weird sort of way. Almost. But more austere and much more critical than most of that genre would be. So you'd think of it more along the deconstructed lines of that genre. It's more like a post-searchers board than anything else. Absolutely. But I think like Robert Altman, like his approach to something like McKay and Mrs. Miller has some similarities. Oh, absolutely. I think on our episode, which we did an episode about Godland, I compared it to my darling Clementine. Mm. Because the first half of it's got that, you know, wrath of God, like we're adventuring through the wilderness. But then the second half, when you get to the settlement and the church is being built, you know, it's the unfinished church. We use that as an opportunity to like get into religious hypocrisy mm-hmm. too, and what it means to like bring a faith across the ocean. Right. And that's explored through the secondary character who is played by Ingvar Skjertsen, who you may know from The Northmen or the previous Palmerson film, A White White Day. Sigurdsson plays the character of Ragnar, who is a mm. native Icelandic person who helps the priest, Lucas, get all the way across the wastes, basically, like helps keep him alive and takes him to this community that he's not a part of. And he reflects or he represents the native culture, the native faith, 
and the fact that you can't just show up and make somebody part of another culture. He's right. basically the foil to Lucas, not learning anything about Iceland. He's the Icelandic, not learning anything about Denmark. Yeah, not that he should have to learn anything about Denmark. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the tragedy is that we learn that even though he's resisted it, he basically has learned all of these things because these people came and forced it on him right. and forced it on the whole country. Right. For me, Sigurdsson, if I had a magic wand, he's best supporting actor right now. That would be incredible. He's amazing yeah. in this. It's an incredible cast from top to bottom, even down to the dog. Oh, yeah. And the horses. The daughters, the younger daughter and the older daughter who has kind of the love interest. Really fantastic work based off of these photographs taken. Mm. Back when, you know, you had like these big old contraptions for cameras and you have to like hide in the curtain to take it. I want to make a quick connection because I just thought about how RNN is based on those real life instances of xenophobia that happened in Romania. For me, I think RNN dramatizing that almost takes away from it because you get into this like fiction even though it's a very well-documented thing that happened in real life versus mm-hmm. this movie you're taking a prompt where it's a missing picture within history it's a portrait that we don't have it's the stories that are untold particularly by these native characters mm-hmm. we're seeing not only the story of those native characters be told but through that story understanding why their photos were erased. And so it uses that prompt and fills in the gaps in a way that I think film is uniquely positioned to do. And it makes yeah. it very powerful. Yeah, it makes you question, you know, who writes history and why, you know, mm-hmm. and who gets to write it. Mm-hmm. Great movie. So happy I got to see this one in theaters. My gosh, what a just gorgeous, gorgeous film. Beautiful movie. Beautiful picture. Highly recommend. This is currently streaming on the Criterion channel. And I believe it's going to be one of their movies that they're adding to that like new uh, run of movies that they're doing that are like EO is going to be one of them. And this is going to be one of them that are mm-hmm. like the contemporary streaming premieres. A movie that I will talk about in a little bit will be one of those as well. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, pretty cool. I love that they're actually doing that. On one hand, it keeps people from bitching about the Blu-rays that they put out yeah. when they put out a contemporary movie. And it gives us kind of like a cheaper alternative and make sure that some of these releases get physical discs that we can mm-hmm. own and watch and we don't just have to fucking settle on pirating them all the right. goddamn time. I mean my only complaint is that they started this after they added Triangle of Fucking Sadness <laughs> into the collection, but you know. And Bergman Island, I think I would argue oh. as well. Well Bergman Island. I like Bergman Island. Yeah, it's fine. Bergman Island, worst person in the world, both like really? Worst person in the world, at least people loved that movie. People felt very strongly about that. So yeah, at least that one's lauded and you know has some nominations to its name. Yeah, I mean, Triangle won the Palme d'Or. <laughs> well, Kansas is full of idiots, as we always know. <laughs> so for me, I already alluded to this back when we were talking about Return to Seoul, as it is another story of Asian immigration. And the identities that fracture when you come from one culture and move into another. And that is the A24 release, the debut feature by Celine Song, Past Lives. This is the story of a young boy and a young girl who are each from Korea, but are separated when the girl's family of artists immigrate to Toronto, Canada. And we see, through some time jumps, three different stages of this couple of characters' life as they are living on separate continents. He's in Korea, she's in Canada. He's in Korea, she's in New York City. 
she's in New York City. Oh, wait, shit, he's in New York City. Oh, fuck. And suddenly, we have to confront the missed connections that happened in these two characters' lives. And I really, the more that I sit with this movie and the more that I think about this movie, I just continue to cherish it for its absolute lack of melodrama and explosive conflict in the way that it just, just like the Reichardt film that was on your list, we navigate the difficult and complex realities of adult Mm -hmm. living through a type of love story that is classic and enduring, but maybe a little bit more on the romantic side. It's more about like what we want, the ideal, you know, the movies, the big image, the big smooching of the Daniel Day-Lewis on the Michelle Pfeiffer wrist. This is kind of a reaction to that that I think is very much rooted in Celine Song's actual life. Shouts to the potion seller video guy, screenwriter of the (laughs) Guadagnino film. Uh, I can't wait for challengers. <laughs> <laughs> we love Mike Faced. That's wow. what I'll say. But yeah, this is a very lovely film. I kind of have a slight preference for Return to Soul mm-hmm. if we're gonna like compare them that way. But this was a refreshing experience just to see something like this in a theater and a packed theater too. Like mine was sold out. Mm, I love that. I think that Return to Soul is dealing with something that's far more of a social issue mm-hmm. which is that of adoption in korea yeah. which is something that we saw with broker last year by hirokazu koreeda mm-hmm. and i think for that reason it's a little bit more uh, the word that we've used a lot is thorny i think it's got a little bit more of an edge to it it's a little bit more like what happens when the world deals you a shit hand and you have to live through that and the character is angrier she's a little bit more mis guided and everything Mm -hmm. in past lives like this is a very well adjusted person yeah this is someone who really has not had a lot of struggle it's just that they have this one thing in their life and it's literally i think the conflict is actually more that these two people are living quite good lives it's just that they're not in each other's lives and what does that mean do you stop living your good life just to chase down some old flame or do you maybe take a more mature approach to that i've seen a lot of people critique the ending of this and i just i don't really agree with them the ending's fantastic yeah i saw somebody say that it should i might cut this but i saw somebody say that it should cut while they're both waiting for the cab as if to be like ambiguous and i was like no fuck no like hello this is brief encounter like yes exactly exactly and it's not got that same rip your shirt open kind of like ah that brief encounter has or that in the mood for love has right yeah you know it is a little bit more of that in the mood for love where it's like look we have to be reasonable here right we're adults we can't just fucking run into this like two idiot kids it's a little bit less pain than that one for sure it's got less of the ache yeah because that one like their other halves are already cheating on them with each other so right this is just like meeting up with an old childhood friend and you're thinking about like what if you meji's theme would feel a little over the top here yeah they would find (laughs) that to be a little extreme like all right john magaro would laugh and then keep playing his video game (laughs) i love the scene where he's asking Greta lee who's amazing this movie oh she's so good she's so fantastic yeah but I love the scene where he's asking her about Sung, who's played by Yo Tio, also fantastic. Mm. But I love the scene where he's asking her about, like, do you find him attractive? And she's like, mm, yeah, <laughs> yes. 
I like Teo's performance as the in the middle chapter when he's like mm. a college student. Yeah. There's a particular scene where he's in like a blue hoodie and sweatpants and like comes out and eats breakfast with his family. And I was just like, yeah, been there. There's so much <laughs> in this movie that has like those. But we talked about the Skype in this because oh in the middle God. there were Skype friends. There's so much in this that's just like really familiar to me because I think these characters are meant to be a little bit older than I am. They're like old millennials, but it's a very like millennial yeah. type of long distance romance movie, I would say. I think all of these characters are supposed to be like 35, 40. More, I think it's definitely like 35 at least or like yeah. 33 somewhere in there based on the timeline. In the middle, they're college age. So early 20s, and then we skip another 12 years. Yeah, mid-30s. Mid-30s. Which is, yeah, it's cool. I Personally, I think movies about that age range and older are always good when people do them well. Which, that's like obvious. But what I mean by good is like, they're kind of precious. So many movies about like fucking, you know, young kids or like actors who are 50 pretending to be much younger than 50 mm-hmm. for a given thing just dealing with the actual realities of adult living and i like when now it's millennials because it's like this infantilized generation that we've always talked about like they're fucking kids watching nickelodeon actually seeing them be 35 and holding a job and like doing normal people shit it's good we the more 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 <laughs> Yeah, you guys need more of this and less Mario. Please, God. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of Mario, my favorite Italian film of the year. Um, <laughs> I really like our list today. I actually was, you know, when I look at these 10 films, it's not quite as strong as our year-end 2022 list, but that was a year-end list. For half a year so far, and admittedly, maybe some of our movies are late 2022 releases that got you know like rmn that was a con 2022 but it got here this year so yeah admittedly some of it maybe because we've got some runoff from last year but so far the first half of this year has had some real gems which is why i was so excited to do this episode but not everybody's really plugged into that right now when i see people post their lists for the year they're posting shazam theory of the gods and transformers Rise of the Beasts and Fast X and fucking Indiana Jones Club shit Right. And they're saying things like, this is such a barren year, holy shit. Which, admittedly, if that's what you've seen, probably feels that way. When I put all those movies together, what I see is American Studio Blockbuster, American Studio Blockbuster, American Studio Blockbuster. Maybe not enough people branching out to watch the indie films you're showing up. They're not branching out to watch Past Lives. But they're also missing all these international releases. Some of them are on our list. Some of them aren't. So I was curious if you had any international releases that you might want to shout out to tell people to keep an eye open for to check out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, that's my preferred brand over Mm -hmm. American filmmaking. So just a couple I want to shout out really quick. Walk Up, directed by Hong Sing Su, who makes, you know, a movie every three to five business days. <laughs> I finally got my hands on the novelist film, by hey, the way. <laughs> yeah. He's actually got another film with Isabelle Hubert on the pipeline, apparently. So very excited. That'd be their third collaboration. But Walk Up is just this great movie about hanging out with the film director and his daughter that he hasn't seen in a long time and wants to be an interior designer. And just watching their lives change over time, you know, just... As they go up each floor of this walk-up apartment complex, you know, more time has passed. 
So you get to watch their lives change and progress as they go on floor by floor. It's a little conceptual. It's a weird thing to talk about in words, but when you experience it, when you're watching the movie, it's just so well made. Also, I know we've just talked about it a little bit on the last episode, A Fire, directed by Christian Petzold, is going to be starting its rollout very soon. Very fantastic film. Any Petzold, I think, is an essential to watch at this point. Also, One Fine Morning, directed by Mia Hansen Love of Bergman Island Notoriety. (laughs) I was just going to say, we were just (laughs) talking about her, weren't we? Yeah. Fantastic performance by Leah Seydoux. Just another really smart drama about infidelity, you know, like what about this path that I might have taken but couldn't? And oops, now I'm actually going to do it. But it's what what happened in past lives. Like they actually went off and did something. But is that one? Does that have like a little bit of like a Alzheimer's type of plot to it as well? In one fine morning. Yes, her father has a neurodegenerative disease. Yeah, there we go. That's what I was thinking of. As she takes care of him. Mm. Now to flip things over to the horror end, I want to talk for one moment about Husera, the bone oh, yeah. woman, directed by Michelle Garza Severa. It's about a woman who becomes pregnant, even though it's not exactly what she wants. The entire family surrounding her is pressuring her into becoming a mother. You know, her parents, her sister, her husband even. And even though she doesn't want to have kids, she's pressured into doing this. And things start to get a little strange and a little scary. But it's just this really great horror movie about the horrors of motherhood and being forced into something that you don't want when everyone surrounding you is pressuring you into doing that. Mm. Also, just a really gnarly sound mix. Like, there's a lot of bone breaking, and it's... (laughs) True to the title. I'll just quickly shout out mine. I've already mentioned one of them, and that's Shin Ultraman, which goes hand-in-hand with Shin Kamen Rider. That was directed by Shinji Higuchi, just another Japanese release that's part of that same series. Mm. That actually had a two-night theatrical release here, a dubbed version and a subtitled version. Which I know because I saw the dubbed one, which I was not happy about. <laughs> Listening to Hidetoshi Nishijima of Drive My Car speak, and then an English voice comes out, like an American voice comes out. Weird. Ew. <laughs> Very oh, that's strange. Bizarre. It speaks to the strength of that movie that I still liked it a lot, in spite of the fact that I watched it that way. Yeah. The other international one that I'll shout for this, because my top three are all international and are all going to be talked about within our mutual top twos here. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about those. The other one that I'll shout is actually a blockbuster in and of itself, or at least just a fucking massive, massive hit. And that is Suzume by Makoto Shinkai, which we talked Mm -hmm. about on our big old new release episode with Evil Dead Rise and Bo's Afraid and all those others. Suzume is... I mean, it's a Makoto Shinkai movie to a large degree. He makes Mm. anime romance films for young adults for the most part. Nicholas Sparks-ass movies. For sure. (laughs) This one, he wanted to break away from that. He's clearly starting to get a little bit, I think with Weathering With You, he felt limited by the fact that the studio wanted him to make a romance. Mm. And they wanted him to do that again here too, where they're like, listen, dude, you're one of the biggest directors in the world. And when people come to see your movie, what they want to see is a girl fall in love with a boy. God damn it. (laughs) Originally, he wanted to make this movie about a pair of sisters or even a, like a sapphic Um, romance. But ultimately the studio kind of pushed him into doing this more conventional style. And so his reaction was to turn the boy into a chair, (laughs) which is hilarious. Like, it literally is physical, comedy-wise, a hilarious (laughs) movie that is 
overstuffed in that Howl's Moving Castle kind of way, but I think it reflects very smartly on some of the same themes that you might see in like Spirited Away mm. about what it means for places that we move on from, yeah. places that were afflicted by disaster, places that you know are an amusement park that maybe shut down and that we don't use anymore, and the memories that are associated with that places, but how ultimately living in the modern world with all of its hardships and global warming, just like in Weathering With You, you have to move on. You have to keep everything forward progress. I think it's a really good movie. I like it a lot. Obviously, it's very popular, so it doesn't necessarily need my help. But in terms of international releases, I do think you know, it's still in my top 10 of the year so far and is my second favorite animated movie after Spider-Verse. So. I'll have to catch up with both of those at some point. Ultraman and Suzume. You know, with Shinkai, part of it is I'm just a sucker for the look. Because that dude will animate a sky in like 1,000 colors. And when you <laughs> see it on a movie screen, particularly in theaters, mm. it's like, oh man, that's just a big, beautiful picture. Yeah, maybe that's part of my problem because someone recommended your name to me and I watched that at home and I was like, really? Yeah, I just don't see the romantic angle because it is so much the opposite of what I love in past lives. You know, that kind of complexity and nuance because it is a little bit more like chest bursting romance kind of stuff. But what I like here is the way that Shinkai crafts everything. It becomes much more centered on the girl as the protagonist Mm. and this boy as a chair (laughs) she's the one that has to kind of become the caretaker and the leader and the decision maker it's not just her following this guy around that's cute Uh so she has much more agency than a typical romance like this would necessarily afford a character like that yeah it's interesting to watch shinkai both lean into who he is and kind of press against his reputation Uh i look forward to the next box off of this exploding movie that he puts out. Yeah, I wonder which inanimate object is going to be the love interest that time. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they'll finally let him make something new. Who knows? (laughs) Uh, Well, I want to bring up another international feature. Oh, You know, it takes place in Osaka, Mm -hmm. Berlin, Paris. Oh, oh, I see. I'm seeing the vision. Starring international sensation Donnie Yen. Yep, and international sensation Keanu Reeves. That's right. As Jean Wick. Jean Wick. My number two for the year. <laughs> this is the first five star on my list, in case you're wondering. Jean Wick, chapter four. This is the big, gigantic, sprawling finale for the John Wick saga. <laughs> Chad Stahelski doesn't seem to know if it's a finale. <laughs> I will beat him with my bare hands if he doesn't. <laughs> if he makes a fifth one, I swear to God, but. This is about John Wick, noted assassin, extraordinaire, slaughterer of men left and right as he seeks his freedom from the high table and he might have just found a way out. This gave me the adrenaline rush that I've been seeking since Fury Road. Yeah. Like just a thousand miles an hour, like you want to start cheering in the damn theater from the rush. When I reflect on this series, the first two feel infused with the same kind of approach as the Raid and the Raid 2, which Mm -hmm. is to say that they strip out much of the extra spy games, whatever you might associate with your James Bonds, and just get into the nitty-gritty of the combat, almost like a Hong Kong action film more than an American action film. Right. What I think the third one starts this, and what the fourth one, I think, achieves 
is that fusion where it's suddenly a little bit more like a Mission Impossible movie, but the meat and potatoes of it is still that carnage, that shoot 'em up fighting, combat stuff that like you wouldn't see Ethan Hunt mowing down a thousand guys, but you would see John Wick doing that, and in this case, it's still got that same level of like sleek spectacle mm-hmm. that you might associate with a Rogue Nation or a Fallout. Yeah, something like this has much more of a greater focus on, you know, how many ways can you break the human body? Right. Turns out you can break it in so many ways. You can break it by strapping mattresses to cars, driving them around a circle, <laughs> and hitting stunt guys with them. Uh, you can break it by stabbing someone as they're climbing up the stairs in panic <laughs> and, like, climbing on their back like they're the side of a mountain. For me, what made this <sighs> one so unique because all four of them have a similar approach to stunt craft stahelski was a former stunt coordinator and a former stuntman for keanu on the matrix his entire filmmaking approach for these four movies has been let's make the stuntman the focus let's take the guy who can take these falls and get hit by the car and take a punch and make that the star and let's have some of these stunt guys beat the shit out of Keanu Reeves. Like, let's have them really wail on him. And what made <laughs> this movie so special relative to all of the others so far is that it has the best cast of side characters outside of John and, you know, Sharon and Winston, yeah. all people that are kind of like John's allies. Because mm-hmm. this introduces very memorably two of the premier stuntmen that we have working today Scott Adkins mm-hmm. as Killa. In the Berlin set piece, the greatest fat suit of all time, maybe. (laughs) Fantastic fake gold teeth. He's got playing cards that pair five, and you can cut people open with them. (laughs) And then the film's clear MVP to me, especially after seeing it a second time in some of the behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Donnie Yen. So good. There's not enough fucking wonderful things to say. He's doing a Zatoichi thing, where he's playing the blind swordsman, Mm -hmm. who is brought in, he's a former ally of John, now he's got to take him out, according to the high table, and the Marquis de Grammont. But what really, really, really makes him work isn't just the stuff that you might traditionally think of for an actor, where Kane is a good character, and he brings genuine pathos into it, and that's all great. What I think he really brings to the table is an aggressiveness to his stunt choreography. Mm. When you watch the behind the scenes of most of these movies, Keanu has become a master of this style of filmmaking and of playing this character. And mm-hmm. so he's just, you know, taking out a guy, taking out a guy, flip him around, kick him, choke him out, take his gun, beat him up. Right. When Donnie comes in there, he's doing everything at like a fucking graduate master level. And so suddenly things break down and they become more improvisational. Mm. When Wick and Kane fight, you're like, oh shit, he's kicking his ass. <laughs> Wick's taking it now. And yeah. that's all in Donnie's choreography because he brings that element into each fight scene. It makes it so much more real and palpable and exciting. There's so much characterization in every single move yes. that any of these characters take. They don't need dialogue. All they need is to beat the shit out of each other. The fighting is the dialogue. Yeah. You mentioned the scene where Akira, the daughter who's played by Rina Sariyama, is ice picking up the dude like she's climbing him. And it's like, yeah, no, that's exactly because she's like exhausted and tired. And she's like, no, you are not <laughs> going to fucking get away from me. Die. Uh, <laughs> great, great film. Amazing. Best staircase scene in a movie maybe ever. <laughs> Sorry, Eisenstein, but time is up to Comedy an end. movies are quoting David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia 
in their opening scene. They're quoting Dante's Inferno and then quoting Lawrence of Arabia with the match cut. Quoting both of those and knowing that they can back those statements up. I think while I'm certainly looking forward to my home video 4K watches of this, I got to see this a second time after we did our episode on it in IMAX. And I was really appreciative of that because I think that this makes a brilliant case for the virtue of the big screen. Because when John is hitting that in the very, very opening, when he's hitting that practice thing and the blood's on there, his fist is the size of a bus and it sounds like it's ramming into a brick wall. It's just like boom, 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 like a fucking gunshot going off in your ear. And you're just brought into the fucking huge explosive combat that just does not let you go for the whole time that it's on. Until the very, very, very end, when it lets you go in a really cathartic, and I would say uplifting way. I think absolutely. And pray to God that they don't undermine it with the five, but you know. Yeah. Our suggestion for five is that if you want to do it, lean into the fantasy. Yeah. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Lean into the mythology more. It was certainly one of the best action movies of the year. Tom Cruise, the gauntlet's been thrown down. I can't wait to see how he picks it up. So from the movie that has the most spectacular and beautiful violence of the year to the movie that I would say probably has the most cold and unnerving violence of the year, even if you might not think so based on the premise, is my second favorite movie of the year. And from here, by the way, with our international question from here, the next three are all international features. So we're putting our money where our mouth is, I think. Mm -hmm. This is the latest difficult production from one of the more troubled filmmakers in modern history, and that's Jafar Panahi. When I say troubled, what I mean is that he has run afoul of his government of Iran multiple times at this point and not been allowed to make and release films under that regime. No Bears is the exact same. I believe it is currently banned in that country and had much difficulty making it to the big screen, which is why it is so significant that the Criterion Channel picked it up and that they're going to be releasing it on a physical release because the movie isn't just banned and just defined by the difficult circumstances of its production. It is about the difficult circumstances of filmmaking production. In this movie, Jafar Panahi plays a fictionalized version of himself who is staying in a small village. He is currently making a movie across the border in Turkey about a couple who are trying to flee the country, get a passport to do that, and the complications that they have. But he cannot leave Iran to go to Turkey to be part of the production, so he's directing it over Zoom on a Mm -hmm. laptop in this tiny little border village. And in that tiny little border village, he is getting acquainted with the locals, taking some pictures, becoming friendly. Causing an enormous ruckus. Taking some pictures he really shouldn't be taking. Mm, And then maybe not backing down about it. (laughs) Yeah. There have been a few movies in the last couple of years, some of which have been mentioned on this show. Steven Spielberg's The Fablements, Joanna Hogg's The Eternal Daughter, maybe Jordan Peele's Nope. Movies that deal with the hardships of making movies, but also questions the virtues of them. And of all of the ones that have come out, none of them collide more viciously with the real world than this one for me. This is the one that takes those questions and offers you not only the most hard-to-digest answers, but that are specifically rooted in real-world issues. 
that are explored through making a film about these people trying to flee Turkey Mm -hmm. and then taking the photographs of this village in Iran and the ways that that impacts all of the characters. Yeah, it's a particularly scathing film, just a real indictment on Panahi's part of himself. He's interrogating himself. He's like, why am I making movies? Mm -hmm. What's the collateral damage that comes out of this? And I think one of the purposes of asking that question, as he did with some of his previous films while he was under his ban, the first question is, why is my government trying to keep me from doing this? Why don't they want me to say what I have to say and make the images that I have to make? And then in this movie, he is asking that question indirectly by directly asking himself, well, why do you need to do it so bad? And I don't know that there's ever a good answer for that question. I don't know that there's an answer for why Panahi has to. One of the great scenes in this is when the village confronts him about the photographs that he's taken. Mm -hmm. And he says, I don't want to swear on the Quran, but I will film myself giving a testimony. It just really reminds me of that Fableman stuff where it's like, the only way this guy knows how to do anything at all is with a camera. If it doesn't Mm -hmm. have a camera, it's like it's foreign to him. It's like, how are you so... Well, I don't want to use the word broken, but like the way that you look at the world prevents you from communicating with anyone outside of using a camera mm-hmm. and the conflict that happens when that happens, because that's not most people. I think that this movie seriously owes a considerable amount to Antonioni's blow up. And there's probably like a million other movies that you can name. It's one of my favorite themes in film from cachet to pick a Chris Marker movie, your Lajete, your Sans Soleil, whatever. And it's this <laughs> idea of like, whoever knows what they're really filming. The mechanical process of using a camera might mean that I'm taking a picture of you, Cole, but I'm seeing into your room. So I'm also taking a picture of your chair, that window, the framed, there's a mirror right there. And what if there were something in that mirror that I was then taking a picture of? Like you don't have control over the image that you create, mm-hmm. no matter what, no matter how much Kubrick-like rigidity you put into your filmmaking, you are out of control of that mechanical process. And so the end result, the film, the image, the photograph, that's out of your hands. It's right. bigger than you. Right. And this movie just deals with that in such a like intensely confrontational way. And particularly the ending of it, just I haven't been able to forget it. And it's been something that crosses my mind because of its reflection on the process of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. In many, many things that I've watched, particularly that deal with these types of international geopolitical conflicts that arise between you know, a country like Iran and censorship, and what is the ethic of recording that into a camera so that someone in America like me can see it? Is it good? Is it bad? Do we know? <laughs> right. Where's the compulsion come from? If Panahi's questioning his compulsions, should we question our own too? Mm-hmm. Leaves you with more questions than answers, but they're questions that you should ask every single time, I think. Yeah, they're essential questions. They are. Just to the nature of filmmaking itself and film watching Mm -hmm. as well. And the nature of responsibility, accountability, how people react. To me, this, we started off talking about RNN, and I think that this just fucking flawlessly captures its community while focusing really specifically on Panahi, and I think part of its criticism is that Panahi's thinking about Panahi, and he's not thinking about all these other people mm-hmm. that are living their real lives that he is you know, now part of and intersecting with. And so I think it does a great job of balancing those two things and even making a statement in the way that it chooses to balance them. So yeah, really incredible film. We're very lucky that we have access to it and that we can see it. Yeah. Uh, so I would highly, highly recommend checking that out. Absolutely.
before we get into our respective top one films of the year, our numero uno, I want to ask, what are you anticipating for the rest of the year? And I'm going to go ahead and spot you a Tom, a Greta, and a Chris. <laughs> Mission Impossible, Oppenheimer, Barbie, that's implied. We're seeing those this yeah. month. Outside of those big three, what's on your list for the rest of the year? There's a couple that I'm excited about. Yorgos Lanthimos among them, but oh, yeah. chief among literally everything else, you know, just top of the list is, of course, Emiliano Scorsese's new film, Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, for which sure. Which is playing in IMAX. That's right. I just cannot wait to see that in IMAX. I listened to the audiobook in one day. So, wow. Yeah, it hooked me in a way that most stories do not. So, I cannot wait to see how this one turns out. Scorsese is currently on a streak of films. I've rated all three of his last films, The Wolf of Wall Street, mm-hmm. Silence, and The Irishman, all five stars. <laughs> so, I mean, how incredible is it to talk about a guy who's in his 80s and possibly putting out the best work of his career? I'm saying. I'm saying. And this feels like it, that movie obviously has a relationship with the Western, which is like the core essential, especially American Hollywood film genre. And it's dealing with this original sin that exists at the heart of the Wild West for real, the westward expansion of the United States, mm-hmm. and naturally that genre, which is the violence against Native Americans. Mm-hmm. So we've got like the American filmmaker tackling the American film genre's biggest original sin. And I'm just like, yeah, gimme, gimme. De Niro, DiCaprio, gimme. Is this De Niro and DiCaprio's first film together? I don't know if it's their first. It's their first with Marty, for sure, together. Mm-hmm. Why can't I think of her name? It's Lily... Lily Gladstone. There we go. But I literally mentioned certain women, like, not that long ago. Every single review has been noticing her as, like, the highlight of the movie. She's an incredible actress. She's the highlight of certain women in the segment that she's in with Kristen Stewart. And I look forward to her potentially becoming a bigger name as a result of this and having more of a high profile. She's really wonderful in First Cow as well. She's a very Mm -hmm. minor part in First Cow, but she's memorable and fun. And that's my most anticipated of the year by Country Mile. Drops October 6th. Yep. Yep. We've mentioned it already. Dune Part 2 coming at the end of this year. Just intrigued, right? Just like, mm-hmm. what is that? What is it going to be? Yeah. It's like, how do you pull off that second half of the story? Because we've seen other people try to do it and fail. Yeah, just flop. The trailer had me excited. I don't often seek out trailers for movies that I know that I'm going to watch. I think the Lanthimos trailer, I saw it in theaters, but mm-hmm. I never watched it on YouTube because I'm like, look, Lanthimos made two of my favorite movies of the 2010s with The Lobster and The Favorite, so I'm yeah. in. I'm game. I'm going. Right. Emma Stone, welcome back. We love you. <laughs> my most anticipated, though, outside of the Scorsese, because I think you're right, that is pretty much the one is the return of one Jonathan Glazer, The Zone of Interest. Ah, uh, yeah. That might be a 2024 release, based on how con releases tend to go in this country. Let me double check. There's a movie that we have not talked about, because I've basically said that we are going to talk about it in front of Oppenheimer instead of this one that you and I both watched for the first time, directed by mm. one Masaki Kobayashi. Mm. And I will say that that movie, in part, reminded me or made me think about what the zone of interest is probably going to be like, because it's a movie about Nazis living at a concentration camp, except unlike other concentration camp movies, it doesn't have any emphasis or focus on the camps. It is a story about the people that are living in this place adjacent to it that 
selects to focus on just their lives as opposed to, you know, the actual horror that they're living next to as a way to be like, look at how they're living, you know, using your understanding of that context. And I just think that one, he's one of the most exciting filmmakers. He's made three movies. They are all exceptional. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the concept just sounds really invigorating and creative and a way to talk about how our lifestyles often are resting upon a foundation of horrible violence that we don't talk about or deal with that we just ignore. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just really, really excited for that one. Yeah. I can't wait. Couldn't find anything on a release date, unfortunately, but hopefully yeah, maybe sometime this fall, you know, just to get that really 10 year gap in. That yeah, stone. exactly. Exactly. Come on. The follow up to under the skin. That's what we all want. Mm. But speaking of horrors that we don't really talk yeah. about. Yes. I want to bring up my number one of the year. The skeletons in the closet of Europe and America. All combined into one. Though so from the mid year, my number one film of the year is Pacifiction. Yes. This oh, is a God. drama thriller film directed by Albert Serra, notable for the death of King Louis the Fifteenth, Liberté. This is a film about High Commissioner de Roller, played by Benoit Magmel of The Piano Teacher. He's a politically calculating and highly suave French government official who spends his days on the island of Tahiti in French Polynesia. He's navigating the best course of peacekeeping between, you know, the French government and all the locals and natives of the island. So he spends his day going from bar to bar, club to club, just basically anywhere you would go at night, he's there and he's smooth talking and entertaining everyone and making sure that everybody's having a good time and that there's no conflict. But this rumor comes in, and it's a persistent rumor, that there's a French submarine off the coast of the island that started to appear. And it turns out that nuclear testing might be coming back, which is something that the locals are not too happy about. So I already mentioned it, but I refer to it as your number one. If Godland is not my favorite cinematography of the year, it is probably this. And this is a little bit more in that it's kind of become the movie that represents this idea as Banshees of Inishirin for whatever reason. Because it's <laughs> more about the fucking unspeakable scenic beauty of Tahiti, where it's just these like radiant pink, orange, purple sunsets, the fucking infinite coastline. Crystal blue water. Gorgeous. But what's so effective is that we're looking at a tropical paradise and the story is the inferno. You know, it's that juxtaposition of the beautiful, tropical, just sensual look, right? You're mm-hmm. on the beach, everybody's shirtless. It's fucking Walter Klemmer from the piano teacher in sunglasses and he's got his fucking dopey blonde hair and his little smile. <laughs> but it's just like vile. Like everything is rotted and ugly in terms of the politics of the French. Yeah, it's all nine layers of hell combines into one. Obviously, Benoit Magimel is the standout. He's the lead character who you spend almost all three hours of this movie with. But there are two standout actors, Pahoa Mahagafanao and Matahi Pambrun, who are both native actors. The former is, she kind of hangs out with Benoit's character. Mm -hmm. And then the latter is kind of more of like, he's resisting the attempts for... Whoa, fuck, what's the word that's like what ambassadors do? Negotiating. Where it's like making countries. Yeah, there's a specific word. Diplomat. Diplomacy. Mm-hmm. He's like really resisting 
the Benoit character's attempts at diplomacy. Yeah. And I just was mentioning that Kobayashi film. What I found the thesis of that to be is this idea that there's the tragedy because you cannot mediate between right and wrong. You can mediate between two people that have different perspectives, but not when one of them is right and the other one of them is wrong. Right. If you try to mediate under those contexts, you're going to lose because the people who are wrong are not going to give up the fact that they're wrong, which in this case is the French. Mm-hmm. The French are not going to stop doing what they're doing. Right. And likewise, the native Tahitians are not going to accept your compromises because the compromises are just 100% negative to the natives and 100% positive for the colonizers. Right. And so this main character is right in the center of an impossible situation, like literally impossible. And he's just like a fuck boy about it. He's just like, nah, I don't care. Blah, yeah. blah, blah, he's blah, blah, blah. a horrible <laughs> little devil, but you know, just hearing him drone on for hours and hours, you can find yourself being lulled in by it, you know, mm. by like this haze that the entire island said. There's this innate irony to having to be a freedom fighter or having to confront politicking in this place that is like a lush paradise take off your shirt and go play in the sand you dumb fuck why are you <laughs> like i don't mean to be like hey europeans come to this other island and make it your vacation spot that's not what i'm saying what i am saying is don't locales like this paint the fucking innate realities of european politics in the most cartoonish colors imaginable mm-hmm. how do you get out here and think that your parliament still matters What's wrong with you? (laughs) What the fuck is your problem? How do you get out to this island and think, you know what? This is the perfect place to test nuclear weaponry. Just get a dark and stormy and relax. I like how the characters in this movie, the French characters who are in support of the establishment, just all kind of have this attitude like, hey, man, it is what it is. We don't fucking care. It's how it is. You know, Mm -hmm. we gotta, you know, it's what we do. That's how we are. (laughs) Like, as if it's just like, there's nothing you can do about it. It's the only way it could ever be. Just the natural order of things to them. Gross. <laughs> and there is like this fire and venom from the native characters that I think breaks you out of that lull from time to time. Yeah. Again, that actor's name, the character's name is also Matahi. He kind of is doing most of the negotiations. He's a younger man. And you can just tell, like, he's like, look, if you guys want to be violent, we can be fucking violent. Trust yeah. me. Mm-hmm. It adds this undercurrent of anger to the film that I think is essential. And eventually you realize that this guy who thinks he's just going to never pay the cost of any of this stuff and just play the middleman and have everything all the time, he's probably going to get squeezed like a grape by somebody eventually. That all comes back around. I've mentioned a couple times seeing stuff in theaters. This is one that I would love to see in a theater. And I hope that it gets a theatrical release because it has not had one here because it is just like completely gorgeous and so immersive for your senses but Mm -hmm. i think that it would really really work in that type of format yeah this one had a very limited run here and unfortunately i missed out on it but can't see them all that way sadly yeah i don't know put this in amc yeah just give me like one imax screening please just do it yeah don't argue (laughs) let me catch a god lands pacifiction double feature please i mean god knows there are probably some more tickets than dial of destiny is so God. Oh, well, on to the final one. It's a movie that we've talked about before, but not a movie that has had its own episode. And so I'm happy to finally be giving it a position of honor because this movie, 
let me let me rewind. You know, we got Marvel movies all the time. They love to do their stupid ass post credit scenes, and they're you know Tony Stark will return in Avengers twenty seven. He's dead, but he's not dead anymore. I never sit through credits. Or it's very rare for me to sit through credits, which I recognize as a film fan is kind of like you know you want to support those people, all the people that make a film. But I'm impatient. I sat through all the trailers. Uh, it's a two hour movie. I gotta go. I gotta go. We're leaving. Something that was really unique about my number one film of the year is that when it ended, the final shot, which is taken overhead on a beach, the credits start to roll. I sat there until the projector turned off and the lights in the auditorium turned on. And I also saw that movie at like 10 p.m. So it was well after like midnight, maybe even close to 1 a.m. that I was doing this. The employees probably fucking hated me if they <laughs> noticed that I was doing it. Although they easily could have come in and started cleaning. I wouldn't have minded this. Just do your thing. I'm not going to get in your way. I'll stand in the back. Hmm. But I just needed to soak in the ending of this movie and soak in the emotions that it left me with. Hmm. And it's another directorial debut on my list actually by Saim Sadiq. It is the very first movie that I have seen from the nation of Pakistan and the movie is called Joyland, another land, Godland, Joyland, all the lands. Big year for lands. <laughs> big year for colonizing, big year for lands. This movie is set in Lahore, Pakistan, and it focuses particularly on one family unit, which is the center of it is a father and his two sons, older and younger, both sons are married. The older son at the very beginning of the film is having his fourth child, all daughters, and the younger son is unemployed. He actually stays home and helps the helps his brother's wife, his sister-in-law, take care of the four kids as well as the father. And instead, his wife works. Uh, I think she's a makeup artist. It's been a second since I've seen this movie, but I'm pretty sure that's what she does. Yeah, she works uh, for bridal makeup. It's what she loves doing. And this is a key point of strife for the greater family unit. The lead character is Hyder, and his wife is Mumtaz. And Hyder doesn't really mind that Mumtaz works. He seems to enjoy being a stay-at-home father, but it causes him some strife because his father and his older brother are constantly nagging him about the fact that he doesn't work and the fact that his wife does both of these. It's not like one or the other or one compound situation. Both of them are like strikes against him. And so from the very beginning, we see a picture of this family that is being challenged by the gender dynamics and gender roles of this culture, which is kind of interesting. Because what ends up happening is that Hyder does get a job, which I'll talk about in a second. But it also means that Mumtaz, in order to help take care of the kids, has to quit her job. So it's literally like, you have a working situation, but because of the culture and because of having to save face, one person has to get a job and the other person has to get rid of a job. It's like, mm. okay, so one has to not work, one has to work, which was already happening. <laughs> <laughs> so right off the bat, it's just this, what we in the West might look at as three different families, the father by himself, the mother and father of four kids, and then the husband and a wife who are all living in one home. How do the greater values of that family impact the smaller individual units? And then how do the individuals within those units, like the individual mm -hmm. people, deal with that constraint and confinement? Do they keep secrets? Do they have other things that they like to go out and do? And we explore how the workplace and professional relationships are a major outlet for your life outside of your family. 
And that's where the core of everything that this movie is comes from. Yeah. This was an emotionally devastating experience. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so there's one other character that we have not mentioned. So when Hyder eventually does get a job, he gets it as an exotic dancer mm-hmm. supporting a transgender artist who is named Biba, who works at like a gentleman's club, a cabaret, basically. Yeah. This is my performance of the year, actually. Alina Khan oh. as Biba. Oh, my Oof. The only reason that it's not clearly is because Rasti Farouk, who plays Mumtaz, the wife, mm. is just as damn good. Yeah. Those two characters are incredible. But what Hyder explores through his profession is that he suddenly has a taste of liberty he's never felt before, particularly sexually, because he finds himself falling for his transgender boss, basically, mm-hmm. and realizes that he has some lgbt romantic sexual feelings that he never knew that he had before being the dutiful husband and son and what kind of strain does that cause on his home life that he has this and that his wife has to surrender the liberty of her working her professional life so that he can go and do this the tension in that is just unbelievable like this is past lives with the turbo boosters attached to it yeah you know everything that kind of makes that tense of like the time that you spent with this person versus this this is more like the madame the dot 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 thing that i've compared it to where the social constrictions forced you into living this kind of life that was dishonest for yourself Mm -hmm. and then you got this taste of something that was more honest and it's difficult to go back to your old life once you've had that Mm -hmm. but Boy, are the consequences steep in this case for a number of reasons. And not just the most conventional ones. Not just for homophobic reasons like hiders being judged, but for the way that it actually impacts these two women who mean so much to him. Mm -hmm. His freedom comes very much at their expense. And I think it says a lot about just the state of filmmaking today, in particular for trans people, that I was fearing for Biba's life, honestly. But the way that the movie yeah. handles her character, I found to be so refreshing, so original, yeah. and just so lovingly handled and well-crafted. She's got such a wonderful personality. Like, it's, it's an interesting <laughs> thing. I love when she's fighting with the other performer. Mm. Yo, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's kind of a bitch. She's, like, giving I mean, her shit for being fat. Her. Like, well, no, no, no. I mean, I mean, Biba is being, like, very cruel back to her. It's like, yeah. there's, because of the intolerance and shitty attitudes, it just, like, rolls out into this thing where she's so caustic with people because she's so protective. That's like, sweetie, I'll just throw it right back in your face. Mm, totally. <laughs> and there's a lot of joy to it. And we even see, like, when Hyder sticks up for her and sticks up for himself. Yeah. But that's all really complicated because it's pretty clear, I think, that Hyder does not have the respect for her gender identity no. that maybe it seems like he does at the beginning because he's clearly exploring some homosexual urges for himself, a desire to be with a man, specifically the desire to be. To have sex with a man, to like have sex with someone that has a penis. Yep. And this offends her. Like, and that's one of the most important scenes of the film to me is like where she's like, she stands up for herself and why she wants to be the person that she is. It's not about attracting some man, it's not about appealing to someone else. It's about living mm-hmm. an inner truth. Exactly. And this movie is about those inner truths, not just doing things to make other people happy. Right. 
I really think a big part of it is once you've accessed that inner truth, nothing else will replace it. Nothing else is good enough. You cannot go back to living a lie once you've seen the truth. Mm -hmm. And that's represented through the sea. He's lived in this landlocked part of Pakistan his whole life. He's never seen the sea. But once you see the ocean, doesn't it make your home feel small? Doesn't it make your life feel insignificant? And to me, that was the overwhelming power of this film by the end of it. Just a devastating experience. Yeah, this and No Bears being my top two, just having like the most brutal fucking endings. (laughs) Just not feeling happy leaving those movies. (laughs) But just feeling like, I love watching these movies where you see people navigate conflicts that aren't just born of like stupidity and making fucking horrible decisions, but living in a world that doesn't leave you with a lot of great decisions to make. It's an incredibly complex portrait mm-hmm. of life. There's certain things about that ending I don't love, but ultimately, like each character is treated with such grace and dignity and respect. Even the father, who you might look at as some kind of villain because he's the one that's kind of imposing this patriarchal value structure, it's mm-hmm. like he's just a guy. He's just a yeah. person. And even he has this moment of blowback. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got their own little secret relationships. And that's another thing that I took from it is like the more you live in the presence of other people, the more your secrets become your refuge for yourself. Mm-hmm. Like when everyone's watching everything that you do, you have more of a, you know, you guard yourself a little bit more. Right. You don't necessarily make all your inner thoughts and feelings open and vulnerable to people. Mm hmm. And how does Absolutely. that impact over time? What is the weight of keeping those secrets? And what happens when people start to find your secrets out? Yep. I think this film does a fantastic job balancing all that. There's so many great images. One of the ones that I think is like on the poster, Biba is wanting a big sign to go hang outside of the dance club, but they won't pay for her to get one. Because that's mm-hmm. the thing is like, she's an artist, she's a dancer at this club, but she's mistreated like she's basically the last on the roster doesn't get all the same support she has to right. perform during the half uh it's at halftime when we did this before too the um <laughs> the, the intermission. intermission yeah exactly um so she has to pay to get this billboard printed of herself and Hyder is the one that ends up having to pick it up and everything but there's this great shot of him riding on the back of the scooter mm-hmm. and it's just her huge on the scooter and then he's <laughs> like kind of totally enveloped by it kind of on the back of the bike i love the scene that happens the next morning too when he tries to hide it by putting it on the roof of his (laughs) and the neighbor sees it (laughs) yeah and she's like "Uh huh even though it's covered up with like a cloth she's still like what it's fucking 20 feet tall (laughs) god it is actually quite a funny movie like it's devastating and it's really like romantic in some ways but it's quite funny too it is a great comedy all around hitter. This reminded me a lot of. They're not very similar movies, but it reminded me of how I felt watching Great Freedom, which is at a similar mm. level on my like decade list. Just two movies that deal with LGBT issues and LGBT yeah. relationships in mm-hmm. specifically homophobic social contexts, and then sits there and says, "We are going to find the delicate human heart of the people that live." in these places and under these restrictive cultural norms. Right. Like, it's not just misery porn. None of it is. There's, like, maybe one moment of Joyland where I'm like, yeah, that's where it kind of tilts into that 
Lucas Daunt close range, but everything about it made sense and felt earned. So that right. when it takes that tilt into the dark and into the dramatic, you really feel like you understand mm-hmm. the human beings that it is happening to. Right. There's a confrontation that happens between the older brother and his wife during that scene that I'm talking about, mm-hmm. where that really spelled it out for me, where it was like, okay, Sadiq really knew how to navigate these conflicts, which is impressive for, I think, a cis-hetero man to be yeah. making. He might, he might be gay, but I don't know. I don't know. I know he's a cis man at a minimum. Yeah. But yeah, special film. Really loved this. Cannot recommend it enough. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you're into any of those types of things, or if you just... I mentioned it. It's the first movie I have ever seen produced in Pakistan. And it's actually just like No Bears banned in that country due to its subject matter. So it's another movie that I think is important to celebrate, to seek out, to support the cinema of that place, particularly because it is so censored. Not just this movie, but the filmmakers of that region and the people of that region. So to celebrate that, I think is really powerful. I love my tragic, fucked up ending movies that are banned in their home countries. (laughs) (laughs) Common threat around here. (laughs) Yeah, that's 2023 so far. So we're really looking forward to catching up with the releases for the rest of the year. Next, we're going to be probably talking about some motorcycles going off of cliffs or some bombs going off in the desert. I don't know. We'll see. I don't know. Maybe some plastic dolls. Maybe. Maybe. You can never tell. (laughs) Maybe the plastic doll is the bomb. Who knows? Are you trying to do those as a double? I actually am. I'm doing Barbie at 12 and Oppenheimer at 6. Got you. I only have my Oppenheimer ticket purchased so far for 70mm IMAX. I'm also seeing that in 70mm IMAX, actually, at the TCL Chinese, you know, theater with all the handprints. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be great. Can't wait to talk about those new movies with you and for the conversations that we will have for the rest of the second half of this year. I can't believe we're already in July. I can believe it because it's so hot outside. But other than that, it does feel like time is just flying by. Uh, Colt, thank you so much for jumping on and talking about our favorite films of the year so far. It's been a lot of fun. Of course, absolutely. Thank you guys all so much for listening. Check out our past episodes and stay tuned for the rest of our selection for this year. Bye, everybody. Ciao. (laughs) 